So, you know, I was thinking about step. I was, I was this series that we're on. I was talking with my wife yesterday. Um, some of you know Cheryl. Cheryl uh, is presently at, right now, she's at the mission campus. She's got a team that she oversees over there, and they're working, and they have the services going on, as, as most of you know. But we were, we were celebrating a very special day for our, ourselves because yesterday was our anniversary. Now, that was a big deal. And we were talking about, oh, no, uh, hey, no, I wasn't, all right, thank you, Lord, thank you. 34 years. Now that, I think, yes. It was 34 years ago. And we were talking about it, how it, at church, at, at the, uh, again, at Mission, when we, we were married there. And uh, 34 plus one day. So this was the day after, right? And um, we were recalling how we stepped into a covenant with one another. We made a promise to one another to love each other, knowing the, the pain and the challenge that often is connected with, with uh, so many of those who start out with that endeavor in their heart. And uh, we were just reflecting on the goodness and the grace of God and how there have been seasons where we've had to step out and reinvent things. We've had to really trust God, you know, to be with us along the years as they've transformed and gone by. And in fact, you saw uh, one of our, actually, again, I, I it just, I think it's good to know, one of our children was actually leading a worship here. She was part of the team. Chloe is our oldest daughter. And so having her just be here is also a tremendous blessing and a reminder of just the goodness and the grace of God. And we started out with just stepping out in faith and trusting him, both as a church as well. And in fact, we would have never even got to the, this place here at the Lake Merced campus if we hadn't taken a step of real faith and trust and tried to launch this because we were running out of space at the other campus. And so we said, what do we think? We, it's going to be complicated. It's going to be challenging. But hey, let's, let's give it a shot and do it and try it. And all of you, many of you, many of you, many of those who are serving right now in the different ministries, children's ministries, parking ministries, helping set this entire um, service up, really, just threw your heart into it. And um, the product is that people's lives are being touched by Jesus, and we get to be a part of his expression of grace in the city. So I'm extraordinarily grateful uh, for the series itself because it's a reminder that life with Jesus is a continual uh, adventure that involves stepping forward. And the passage that I'd love for us to just sit with and look at and learn from, so I want us to learn from the passage and also apply it into our own lives this passage has to do with, and it's a marvelous exchange that occurred between Jesus and his disciples at the outset of Jesus' public ministry. And I want to sit with it. I want to imagine with it. I want to enjoy this time with you. Um, I don't want to take it for granted. And I want to ask that his word would speak to us and um, stir a, a hope a trust, a surrender, to move forward with what he's calling us to. So let's begin. Let's look at verse number one. you got your handouts there. If you have your Bibles or you have your Bible app, if, if whatever works, but I'd like for us to look at this verse together. It starts out in Luke 5, verse number one. So it was as the multitude pressed about him, Jesus, to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Um, the lake of Gennesaret, and they've, they've put that up already. The lake of Gennesaret is another word for the Sea of Galilee. And uh, some of us, this is the Sea of Galilee, north of Jerusalem. Uh, 
It's, it, some of you can see the shape. I asked my head, I said, can you guys put it? I wanted everybody to be able to see kind of what, some people say it's shaped like a harp. Uh, but it's an amazing place to go. I've been to it now for a few times. So much of what takes place in the New Testament with Jesus is connected to the sea, the region of the Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret, as it's also known as, is a very important part of that. And uh, it's, the lake itself is, is fed from both a spring and also from the waters. And if they, I'll have them put up a little map there. You can see where it is. Now, everybody is really good to know geographically where the land of the Bible is. And you can see where Jerusalem is. You see the Mediterranean Sea. You can see also the, where we're talking about in relation to the world map. You see that. You see how close it is to the continent of Africa, to the south. And you can see Europe to the north and west. And then, of course, the massive Asia, continent of Asia to the east. And you can see where Israel is located. Jerusalem is located. The city is almost like the center. In Jerusalem, there are two, really, in the land of the Bible, there are two typically water, places of water that are mentioned frequently. One of them, or at least is referred to as the Dead Sea. Nothing comes out of the Dead Sea. Things die in the Dead Sea. Hence the term Dead Sea, all right? Because it's, it's got such high salt content. Um, the Sea of Galilee, however, has water flowing through it. And it comes from mostly the waters underneath and from the, the waters that flow from the Jordan down from, the Mount, from Mount Hermon. And it flows into the Sea of Galilee. And, that's a, and you can see how beautiful it is. A, it, it, it really has its own unique kind of uh, beauty, if I could describe it that way. It's picturesque. Um, morning, it would seem, you know, uh, when we come. Look, in fact, look at the second verse. It says, he saw two boats. Oh, and by the way, did you know that the, the Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake in the world? And it's the second lowest lake in the world. You know what the lowest is? The Dead Sea. Dead Sea is the lowest at, in terms of how, how the depth, you know, elevation. And the, and the Sea of Galilee is second, but it's the, it's the lowest freshwater that there is in the whole world. But when we come to verse 2, it says, He saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from, from them and were washing their nets. And so you could, the, the Sea of Galilee is picturesque. Um, seems like the morning, it, the early sun. And again, I want to I plant it in our mind's eye, the idea of the early sun creeping over the hills. See this picture as Jesus approaches them, the light breeze, the pastels. Um, because when you're there, that's what you notice. You feel it. It's like you'll notice these hues of light blue and lavender and brown and beige. It's subtle, but it's softly beautiful. The lake, if we can see Jesus walking with a group of people, there are fishermen on the side of the, of the edge of the sea. They're walking. But the, the, the feel of it, the smell of it, you see it, you saw it, it's there. And this is what kind of what we're looking at. It's not just some made-up thing. It's, it's a real place, and it has a real texture to it. And I want us to try to embed ourselves as much as possible into this moment because, and see it really with our mind's eye. So their boats were secured a few yards away. The fishermen are washing their nets. Hard work anytime, by the way, after a night of fishing. But particularly unsatisfying, it would be for, as we're told here, them to be cleaning their nets after a night when they, they had nothing. Uh, we're told here they had gone from, from their nets and were washing their nets. And... And, uh, you know, when you 
when you fish in the when they fished in the Sea of Galilee, to throw their nets was hard work. It was it was it required strength to toss nets out, and it it, it required a lot of uh, preparation, and then to draw those nets, not only to toss these heavy heavy nets out, but to then pull them in, also required a tremendous amount of strength and energy, and so it was a physical kind of labor that the fishermen had been engaged in, and um, you know. To, as we're going to see, they had nothing. They had caught nothing. They had nothing to show for it. And so it was kind of brutal to put, it'd be like you putting a whole day's labor and working and being told afterwards, uh, you're not getting paid for that, right? That would be hard to get nothing from all that labor. And so, uh, but that was a fisherman's life. They, were knew, that, they knew that. So these fishermen who were, whose names we're about to see and we will know, and recognize. They have been fishing in the Sea of Galilee as Jesus is walking by. Peter and his friends were business partners. They were what we might call commercial fishermen. And, may, and this is very important as we're about to look at this. They knew, they knew these waters. They had fished these waters since they were boys. They had spent their entire life by that place we just looked at, the Sea of Galilee. That was not only their place where they, they had their occupation and their vocation, it's what they knew and loved. They understood those waters. They knew when a, when a storm would whip over the, over the mountain and, and move that water. They knew when the fish were biting and where, where to find them, I should say. They were expert fishermen. They were expert fishermen in the Sea of Galilee. And if there was one thing in their life, if you were to ask Peter or Andrew or James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the one thing they were really good at, it'd be like someone asking you, what is the one thing you're really good at? They would have said, the one thing I'm, pro I'm probably, I know how to fish. And I know how to fish in the Sea of Galilee. That was their area of expertise. And one of the things, so that's one thing we know. We also know that we're told that they were also very committed to God. They were good at what they did, fishermen by trade, but they also loved God. And they were students of the scriptures. It's true they had no formal training, but they had grown to love the God of their people, the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. That was their God. They had, they had actually been so invested in the promises of God, and people were talking about how God, God was going to act on their behalf and how Messiah was coming. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, had arisen this man um, who was this radical voice in the wilderness. A prophet had arisen after generations of nothing, John, the one they would call the Baptist because he baptized people to repentance in preparation for the coming of, he said, of a new movement of God. That John the Baptist was someone who was this charismatic figure who was compelling everyone to think about God in fresh new terms. We know that their paths crossed John's path and that they were compelled to follow John the Baptist. It wasn't until after John pointed them towards Jesus who he declared as, that's the one, the Lamb of God, that then these four, Simon, Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, and John, decided to start following Jesus. But it was, they started as followers of John. They were very committed, very devout. Okay, and so 
I, I want us to understand that as a setup because what evidently had happened is they had started to follow Jesus, but some time had passed, and they hadn't heard anything from him. They had said that we want to follow you now. John's pointed us in your direction. We're serious. But they had heard nothing. And so after a while, even though they had decided to follow Jesus, nothing was happening. And so what they did is they had to make a living. They had to make money. So they went back and started fishing again. They didn't know what to do. What else were they to do? So they started. They had families to raise, feed. They, they, they had to do what they knew to do. And so that's the setting, right? It was a sensible thing to do anyway. And that's the setting. They are cleaning their nets, right? After a frustrating night of work, when Jesus appears at a distance with a large group of people kind of surrounding him, following him, and wanting to hear him teach. Now, they had left their boat out there. They were already on the shore cleaning. And then they looked and they could see Jesus. There were people pressing him, surrounding him. And then Jesus kept coming in their direction, and he stopped by the boat. And let us see, as Simon and James and John look at Jesus, it's like, what? <laughs> he stops the people all around. Look at verse 3. It says, then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Peter's, and he asked him to put out a little bit from the land. So Jesus, get it, they're not in the boat. Jesus, with the crowd all around him, stops there where they've been cleaning their nets. Jesus then, without asking, gets into the boat. And then he says something to them. Hey, come in. Let's push this thing out a little bit. And then Jesus, as they pushed the boat back off the shore, he sat in there. And it was from that place that he taught the people. So he kind of uses a natural amphitheater as, the, as his words bounce off the water and they're sitting at the shore. It's very picturesque. It's a beautiful scene. And Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, I'm sure they're watching, kind of, wow, Jesus is there, he's teaching, and they're, in, they're interested in what he's teaching, all right? But then look what happens in verse 4. When Jesus stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Simon, after he was done sharing and teaching them and probably told everybody, go your way with the blessing of God upon you. He says, Simon, I want you to launch out into the deep. And he means by that, I want you to untie this and I want you to take the boat back into deep waters. I want you to go back out there into the deep place. And I want you to throw down your nets for a catch. That's the picture. Throw down your nets, nets for a catch. And you can see a little bit of what that might have looked like. Let us remember these men, right? They, remember this, they had made it known that they were willing to give Jesus their allegiance in the realm of morals, in the realm of duty, religiously speaking, spiritual things. Uh, they, they had already said, we want you to hold court. You're, you're the one we believe in. Uh, that he was a great rabbi was without controversy. Even his critics acknowledged that Jesus was exceptional and, and though unorthodox, that his knowledge was 
something that had to be reckoned with. Like, he was taught by no one. He went to no school. They didn't really know what to do with Jesus. But his words, he didn't, when he spoke them, he didn't even speak them like he was talking about somebody. He talked as if he was speaking directly from God, as if his own words had authority. People were compelled by him, but they could not underestimate his knowledge. He clearly had it. How he got it, no one knew. The, for the disciples, they had come to believe, even in their short in their short exposure to Jesus, they had come to believe that he was more than a teacher. They had come to believe that he was, at minimum, a prophet. Clearly, as John had said, anointed of the Lord, quite possibly the Messiah, the promised one of Israel. But listen, it was an altogether different matter. <laughs> Startling and unexpected, if you will, when Jesus decided to invade and challenge, hear me out, their sphere of expertise. It was one thing for them to regard Jesus as the spiritual teacher, as, the, as a rabbi like none other, as the possible Messiah, but it was another thing for Jesus to t come in and start trying to tell them what to do in their area, the one real area of expertise. They knew the waters, and they knew where the fish were. That's what they did. And so to have Jesus, after he's teaching and sharing, and, you know, they loved it, I'm sure. I'm sure they were looking at one another and going, this is wonderful. He's on the boat. It's fantastic. But then to have Jesus say, okay, after they had cleaned their nets and everything, which was extraordinarily hard work. I mean, we go, oh, they cleaned their nets. No, it wasn't like you just got a hose and washed it off. These were heavy nets. They had things in them. They had pulled them seaweed and dirt and other such things that were caught as they pulled them through the water. To clean your nets was part of the ritual that closed your day out. It would be like you closing up shop. I'm done for the day. Whew. What a day. Did you catch anything? Nothing. But we worked hard. And now Jesus is saying, hey, time to go back out. And I can see Peter going, okay. He looks and listens, and probably they're all looking at each other like, but look what he says. He says, launch out in the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And I would assume Peter's will buckles a bit. And they look at each other with reluctance in their eyes. And it's captured in these words. Look at, the, look at that fifth verse. But Simon answered, and he said, Master, which is a term of great respect. Uh, it, it, it was almost like he, he was saying, Master, okay. Um, and there's so much in it. We, we have, okay, how can I say this? We have worked, we have toiled all night. We have caught nothing. There, there again, we've been out all night. The fish aren't around today. Besides, 
how can we say this to you? Um, this is not the time of the day to do it. Uh, you don't fish at this time of the day. Plus, plus we, the time to fish is when we fished. That's when you can, they don't see us, the nets. But when, when this day like it is now, when you throw the nets out, I, I, how can I tell you? They, they see the shadow on the nets and they won't they'll go anywhere near it. Plus, we've cleaned these nets. <laughs> I mean, all the debris, all the weeds, all the stuff. I know you wouldn't know this, but this is hard work. <laughs> and we're done. We're done. Uh, uh, the shop's closed. But then, <sighs> with the pause, I think it's important to put it right in there. Lord, we, Matt, we, we told all night long, we got nothing. <sighs> Nevertheless, if that's what you want, that's what we do. <laughs> nevertheless. Guys, nevertheless, at his word, <laughs> let's do this. Okay, I'm telling you. We fished all night. There's nothing there. Okay, yeah, I was reading F.B. Meyer. When I was a young man, a young follower of Jesus, I used to love to read about Bible, Bible characters, and I would read these little bi biographies, kind of studies, you know, character studies. And uh, I remember one time reading something that F.B. Meyer wrote uh, about Peter in this moment, and I didn't forget it. This is what he said. Just listen to these words, okay? Again, try to put yourself right into them. Peter had fished these waters, Myers writes, from boyhood. There was nothing in the craft with which he was not familiar. The habits of the fish, the hours and the spots most suitable for taking them, uh, the effect of climatic conditions. In all, he was proficient. He would have hotly resented any interference on the part of other fishermen of his acquaintance. And now he found himself suddenly confronted with a bidding which was contradicted by his experience, by the universal maxims and practice of generations, and by the bitter failure of the preceding night which had left him jaded, right, weary, tired, out of heart. He would be prepared to obey the slightest precept that came from the master's lips, but how could one who had spent his day, if I can say it this way, in the carpenter's workshop of a mountain village be competent to take command of a boat and direct the casting of a net? Was he to, to, was he to, to renounce himself in this also? The morning was not the time for fishing. The glare of light revealed the meshes of the nets, and the fish were not to be found, not in the deep, but the shallower parts of the lake. The whole of the fisherfolk, the other fisher, fishermen that might see his boat, boat pulling out at such an hour, laden with nets and evidently prepared for fishing, would laugh at him and count him crazy. Peer pressure on top of everything else. What are you doing, Peter? Peter, you can't be serious. Hey, this, 
Go back to it. Master, we've toiled all night. We've worked all night. We've caught nothing. (laughs) Nevertheless. Okay. At your word, I will let down the net. And what's fascinating here is that he calls Jesus master in the Greek, epistates. The word doesn't actually mean teacher. It's almost as better translated out as captain or overseer. One who is in charge. So it's almost like Peter says, all right, you're the captain of this boat. And so he steered into the deep, didn't he? Look at that, the deep waters. By the way, when we surrender to his word in our lives, it will always take us into the deep. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they got there, they threw the nets out, they caught a great, I mean, a great number of fish, we're told, and their net was breaking. The description here in verse 6, you can look at it right there. Their boat is lurching dangerously, so dangerously that it's getting near the waterline that they're starting to signal for help. Such was the extent of their catch that even with the, even with the help of their partners, they could barely stay above the water and hold the fish. That's how much of a catch it was. And so they signal, verse 7, their partners in the other boat to come and help them. Hey, guys, we need your help bad. And they came and they filled both the boats. And to the extent that they almost both began to sink. So much weight of fish. And, verse, and when Simon saw it, okay, I'm imagining him gets back to the shore. Could have been on the boat, though. I'm not sure. But when Simon saw what had happened, how illogical it was, how different it was from everything that had made sense to him in the area of his expertise, right? He, what we're told here, he falls down. I love, I love this. He falls down on his knees and he says, I, I, you see, I, get away from me. I am a sinful man. I am a willful, stubborn man. (laughs) Oh, Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished. They were stunned at the catch of fish which they had taken. And I love Peter because you know what Peter does right in this moment? He turns internal. He looks inside his own heart. He's an utterly honest self-assessor. All his flaws, that's one thing he was. He was honest about himself. For him, you understand, why did you go, why does he say like, why does he say that? Because in that moment, he feels the contrast is so deep. He, he senses his resistance and how far off he was. The, the, the enormous gap between him and Jesus, he feels it. He feels it. Unworthy. That's what I am. And willful. That's what I am. This is who I am. Don't waste your time on a man like me. I'm not your guy. It's beautiful. Powerful. 
And verse 10, and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, I love this response. Think about why he gives it. Peter's on, the, on his knees saying, don't, get it, don't have anything to do with me. I'm a sinful, willful man. You can't use a man like me, not, not who you are. You know what Jesus says? I love this. Do not be afraid. What are you talking about? Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And so when they brought their boats to land, they forsook all, and they started to follow Jesus. That's the beginning of the big movement of them attaching themselves to the ministry of Jesus. Don't be afraid. What a response. Jesus, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Now, why did, think about that. He says, don't have anything to do with me. Peter says, and Jesus says to Peter, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. What a, Jesus hears Peter's words, and you know what he calls it? He calls it fear. Peter is basically saying, do you, do you see it? I won't be able to sustain. I will let you down. Part of that is true. I think he's afraid he'll disappoint Jesus, that he will fail. It's so honest, so real, so raw, sincere humility driven by a lack of confidence in his capacity to be the kind of disciple that Jesus needs. Again, I'm not your guy. you got to find somebody different than me. I, I, I resisted you here, right? And you went so far. Be Don't be afraid, Simon. Do not be afraid. You used to catch fish, but from now on you will catch men. Jesus uses the language of his vocation to translate out his kingdom commission. That's what you'll do. And so it will be for all of us. He wills, if I can say it this way, he wills to use us in the place of what we know. The gospel translated primarily through the language of our experience. So here are some things I want to present around this <laughs> marvelous passage. I just love. Here's the one. It's going to sound so simple. So simple. Hear me when I say it. Jesus can do everything better than me. Everything better than me. And everything is everything. In our area of greatest strength, he can do better. In the place of our most effective service, he can do it better. In the details of our supreme talent and our gifting, whatever we think we're really good at, he can do it better. And it will be for all of us, right? Anything, any place, anyone, anywhere, he can do it better than me. In fact, because I'm here with you, I need you to turn to somebody on your left and your right and say, he can do it better than me. Come on, I need you to say it. Come on. He can. He can do it. Always, always, he can. He can. When we're facing things, when we're stuck, when we think we know, remember, he can do it better than me. But I know this, Peter, he can do it better than you. What does that mean? At least in part, here's a second piece. Remember this too. Terry, there can never be two captains 
in the boat. No, sir. Humble submission and courage are When we struggle with the Lord, it's because we're having a problem with who's the captain. There can never be two captains in the boat. Either we are or he is. And we may struggle with this. I certainly have. But before the nets of our lives can be filled or something of a seasonal promise can come into being, the issue of captain has to be settled. Back to Peter. You're crazy. Sorry, I don't know how to say it. Not you crazy. This is crazy. Master, um, we have toiled all night. We've caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I let this down. I let the, I, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. A pro it was a protest. We've, all, we've been laboring all night long. This is hard work to go back out there and do this. This does not make sense. This is, un, this is lacking sensibility. Nevertheless, at your word. That's the key. Nevertheless, at your word. Sometimes it will be a struggle to get to launch. Sometimes it'll be the struggle to get to step out. Sometimes it'll be the struggle to get that sail back up. Sometimes that's exactly where the struggle is. Uh, and then to, to see the catch that shouldn't have happened for Peter, it has been said that it was there that Peter recognized for the first time what partnership with Christ means, how submission on our part secures co cooperation on his. Humility, this is a prerequisite to breakthrough. But it also requires courage and trust. Trust in his words. I was thinking about it. Trust in his words and his word for us. Trust in his words and his word for us. His word to us. Perhaps there is an issue right now in your life that requires great trust in God. And very few people may know of it. It may be something very personal to us, deep within. I have more than a few things where I am struggling to trust God with, one of which we'll talk about this afternoon. Is there something we are anxious over that we are struggling to trust him with? Hmm. Sometimes trust is stepping out. Sometimes it's rowing out. Sometimes trust is letting go. It's like throwing the net. All right, here we go. <clears throat> letting it go, letting it go. <sighs> this is crazy. Ready? Let's do it. Let's do it. That's trust. Oh, let's trust him with expectation. And then if nothing else, okay, this one, try to hear me out. It's sitting right underneath that thought, the idea of captain in the boat. If we cannot trust him with expectant faith, okay, I don't know exactly how this plays out theologically, but I know what it did to me last night as I was sitting with it. If I cannot trust you, Lord, by faith with expectation, then let me trust you in obedience. You look at this, and one of the things that stands out 
is their faith wavered, but their obedience remained. Their faith, like, this is, this is, this is, not, this is we've told all night. That's wavering faith. Okay, if you want us to do it, we'll do it. That's reluctant obedience. But it was obedience. And it was, this is really important, it was enough for God to work with. Where's the faith? Okay, <laughs> I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. Sometimes the real victory for us is just doing. You say, well, but you're not doing it. You should be have a, you should have a, oh, where's your faith? You got to have, you got to have it all tied together. It's got to be really good. You got to have the faith right, then obey God. And I'm looking at this and I'm going, this is choppy waters. This is not, this is not, oh yeah, I believe you, Lord. And now I'm going to obey you. And we got the, the big nets going to fill up with fit. This is, Lord, this doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I think you're, I think you're mistaken on this one. But I'm going to do it anyway because you asked me to and I'm going to do it. That's obedience. Hardly champion-like faith. Which is really hopeful for me and you, I hope, as well. Because it reminds us that God, I, I, I may not have this thing all the way down, right? I may be wrestling back and forth with unbelief. I may be struggling back and forth on this issue. I may be getting it right, sometimes not getting it right. I may be doubting your goodness. I might have a little bit of fear laying hold of me. But you know what, Lord? I'm just going to stay. I'm going to do what you're asking. I'm going to stay. I'm going to get out there and do it. I don't really even necessarily want to do it. But I'm going to do it because I know you want me to. And watch what God can do. Listen even with reluctant obedience. What? That's exactly what I said. Look at this third piece here. They obtained a stunning blessing. The blessing of God often makes us uncomfortable. You guys, stay with me on this. It often makes us uncomfortable when we're on the stretch for God. Our nest may actually start to break, and our boat may get a little too close to sinking. In other words, systems get stretched when we are stretching for God. But that can be a sign of success or that we're on the right track. With, with a catch of fish, listen, with a catch of fish comes breaking nets. With a catch of fish, what, what, what I'm saying is it may stretch us a bit to contend for the miracle and breakthrough he wants to bring us, but it is worth it. It is worth it. It is worth it. So worth it. I'd rather have breaking nets with a lot of fish than clean, pristine nets with nothing in them. You got beautiful nets. They're clean. But that's not what a net was made for. Not to be on the shore, but to be in the water. But it's work and it's messy, I know. But that's where the grace and the blessing is to be found. You want clean nets, stay here. You want to have them filled, come with me into the deep. That's holy ground. We will never witness the miraculous and be amazed. Just playing it safe. We will never witness the miraculous and be amazed. Just playing it safe. <laughs> no, sir. No, we will not. What was it? Uh, there's a time to launch and time to launch out, and there's a time to risk 
And some things cannot happen just by playing it safe. I'm going to leave it with this. This will be my last one. And I know I'm just putting stuff out there for you to think about. But I love this part of it, too. When the Lord brings a breakthrough, he requires all of us to work together. Do you see it? You see it? Isn't that so good? Hey, guys, 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 hey. No one's back there. I was just saying it. I was just saying it. It's like, I, we need you to help us here. We can't do it. It's good. We're going to sink. There's so many fish. You got to help us. You got to help. You got to take some of them. You got to work together here. You know what? When it says they signaled their partners, look at that, seven first, and the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled the boat, the boats, and they so, so high that they would begin to sink so much weight at a personal level. We're all going to need partners in faith. That is why this journey of faith in Jesus, when it works right, is never done alone. It's not one guy or one woman in a boat on their own. There's a time to be alone, I suppose, and it's pretty clear there is. For replenishment, there are some replenishments that only being alone can bring. But there is clearly a template of healthy life in God, which is why we consistently talk about community and the value of small groups and friendships and partnerships. Because when God is doing something, it requires others. And at a church, that's true at a personal level, never be isolated in the Lord. Never. It's too tough out there. Uh, two is better than one. Threefold cord, not easily broken. This, because we're prone to ups and downs. We emotionally have, we get hit. We can fluctuate. Our faith can get dry. The way gets hard. I want to quit. Nothing's happening. I can't do it. Depart from me. I, I, can't, I cannot deliver for you. I'm a man of contradictions. I got, I got stuff. We need others to pray. Pray for one another. Confess your faults to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed in the Lord's name. Power there. We're all going to need it. None of us that strong. Never met, ever made that way as a church. Oh, that's how the church works best. You know how it works best? When there's so much life to take care of, we have to all work together to get it done. That's when the church is at its, probably at its best. It's one of the best feelings in life to see the Lord send a miraculous catch. May it be so for us, Lord. May it be so in the coming months and years that we get the joy of partnering together because what we have, what the Lord is doing among us is so much that it requires all of us working together, throwing our hearts into it. Because God's been so amazing. How good would that be? All right. I'm going to pray. We have our time of giving. Thank you, by the way, for those of you who are so faithful in your tithes, in your giving. You carry the weight of this church. Thank you. But I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for, um, and we have a song to close with. But I'm going to pray for what we've just shared. And so even now, Lord, I thank you for the great privilege of being able to look at your words and to share them and, and, and hopefully some of it come alive in our hearts, in our minds as well. And I ask that you would help us to trust you as our captain, as our captain. Oh, captain, my captain. 
Be my captain, Lord. Be the captain of my life. Jesus, in the places where I am most afraid, whether it be like Peter of my own inability to honor you properly, therefore I pull back. Or whether it be with some of the things that I'm bearing, that we're bearing, that are heavy, heavy loads, uh, emotionally, relationally, we feel it. Some of us very anxious. Might have to do with our bodies. Even now I pray healing in the body that is sick in the name of Jesus. I pray it for whoever we may be. I pray for a life and wholeness and I pray for provision and grace. I pray for the goodness of the Lord to prevail in ways that are, is seen and even not seen. And I ask that you would make a way for each one of us individually as we place you at the head of this ship, of this boat of ours. You're the one, Lord. And at your word, at your, nevertheless, at your word, nevertheless, at your word, we claim your word. We hold to your word. We submit to your word. Help us to receive what it is you have for us as we line ourselves up with your word, your word over our lives. Oh, captain, my captain. So, Lord, we commit our way to you. We, we, we commit this closing song to you, which reminds us that you are the captain of our faith. And uh, let it be a, a wonderful full circle moment. And then for those of us who can stay afterwards and share a meal together and share a tender time of, of unity and communion together, so be it. We ask, we thank you. Thank you so much, Lord. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.